Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs weekly podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. All right. So if, uh, if you're at all interested in uh, what it means to be a member at Harvest Springs, uh, we're starting that process. It'll be starting January 16th. Uh, our first our first session. You've got a couple of weeks to talk about it. Uh, you can go to our website. There's a special tab there that says membership. It'll give you all the information you need to know. But we would uh, we'd love to have you jump in in that first round. And uh, and really, it is all about helping you become a more fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We we really are not at all interested in trying to figure out, man, can we get more members as a church? That's That really is not a win for us. But if there are more disciples being made at Harvest Springs, that is a win. Amen? Amen. So that's what God's called us to, is to help people take their next step towards Christ. And, and so if that's at all uh, something you're interested in, uh, uh, jump in. You can find it on our website, on our app. Uh, or if, you, if you're not technologically savvy, just come talk to us and we'll give you all the information. Well, I want to say a couple of thank yous uh, uh, before we go much further. Number one, I want to thank the worship team for doing my favorite worship song at the end of uh, that set. That song, Mercy, is is awesome. Love it. And uh, come back here and, and uh, kind of uh, snuck in kind of at the end of that song again. The first service I was in the, the whole set, but it was just so good to sing it and appreciate just the the truth that we are, we're not here because of our goodness and our mercy, but because of his. And uh, I love that. So uh, thanks to those guys for doing it. Um, uh, Second, thank you. Thanks for you to you for being here today. I know, I know it's cold. I know it's snowy. I know it's just the day after Christmas. Lots of stuff I'm sure that we could be doing. The fact that you're here, the fact that we're uh, getting to engage together, grow together, pursue God together, that's a a big deal. And so thanks for for joining with us today. Uh, Number three, thanks to all of our volunteers, not only today, but over the course of the last several weeks. you know, Christmas is a big season. Uh, we had, uh, it, it was hard to count the number of responses we had over our Christmas Eve services. When I gave an invitation in all of our services to respond to God and hail him as the king over their life, to come to him and to offer their lives as service, uh, probably over 40 people responded over the course of those services. We couldn't do that without people who are willing to serve and uh, do stuff behind the scenes, our band, our audio tech guys, people watching kiddos. Um, so thank you to the, the many people that are, and we couldn't do a service like today without volunteers. In fact, in the first service, there were more volunteers here uh, serving than actually attended that first service because it was, it was cold. And, uh, but anyway, we're glad you're here. Today, we're going to uh, finish up this series on the presence of God. And when I say presence, I'm not talking about gifts again. We're talking about Emmanuel, God's presence. He's with us. And, uh, and we're going to finish by talking about something that's not connected really to Christmas at all. Uh, but it is to a certain extent, because we know that today is the 26th. Christmas is over. It is. I know we sang some Christmas songs, but at some point, we let Christmas go. And we're not singing Christmas songs all year long. At some point, you're going to 
take down all your Christmas decorations. You're going to put away the tree and you're going to take down the lights. At some point, you're going to walk away from kind of the whole framework of Christmas and you're going to move into a new framework, whether that's, you know, uh, the winter, you know, framework, if it's the spring that's coming, the summer, you know, uh, all of that stuff is going away probably this week at my house and won't come back out again until probably Thanksgiving. But what do we do to try to keep and maintain that idea of God's presence, not just in the Christmas season when we recognize Emmanuel, God with us, Christ has been born to us, but how do we maintain this understanding that God's presence is available to us all the time? And how do we continue to pursue and reorient our lives around his presence? That's the big question for today. How do we, how do we live Christmas out the rest of the year? And we're going to go to a passage of scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to go there. Uh, I ask our staff if they knew about the guy we're going to talk about today. None of them had ever heard of the guy. But, and I'm, I'm venturing to say that most of us have not heard of this guy either. But I think his example is one for us all as followers of Christ to replicate. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 says this, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from uh, Bela Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God. This is the Ark of the Covenant, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So most of us are familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. If you watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You know, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, was basically a tangible, physical representation of the presence of God to the people of Israel. In fact, on the top of the Ark, the lid, there were two angels with their wings stretched out to each other. And in the Israelites' view, those two wings created a seat, or a throne in which God's presence would tangibly dwell. And so in that passage there, it says, uh, the God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits, where? Enthroned above those two angels. So the Ark of the Covenant, in a lot of ways, was like the throne of God. And so where the Ark was, God would take his seat and so the people of Israel understood that the ark was kind of this representation of the presence of God. Now, before this passage, there's some things you need to understand. Because the history of the ark was before this, when King Saul was uh, the, uh, the king, right? He did not lead well. The people did not honor the Lord. They ultimately... Uh, are defeated by the Philistines and the Philistines capture the ark and they carry it off and they go and they set it up in their temple, the temple to uh, Dagon, their God. And, uh, and they kind of, they think they've got Israel and Israel's feeling tremendously defeated because no longer is the presence of God with them. 
what ultimately happens while the Ark of the Covenant is in their temple to Dagon is that all the statues of Dagon, every morning when they go in, they find that all the statues have fallen down and they're all bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. And, uh, and they set them back up and the next morning they come in, they're all bowing down and, and, uh, the Philistines realize, man, we're messing with something here that's bigger than us. Let's get rid of this thing. And so they put it on a cart and they just send it off, like get it out of Dodge. Right. And so Israel ultimately gets possession of the ark back and they take the ark and take it to a guy's house named Abinadab. Okay, and Abinadab becomes the kind of caretaker for the ark. It's stored at his place and it stays there for probably more than 20 years. Okay, we don't know exactly how long it's there, but more than 20 years. David, when he comes to the throne, realizes I, we need the presence of God in the house right? If we're going to be God's people, and if we're going to be a successful nation, we need God's presence with us. And so he gets excited about getting God's presence into Jerusalem. And so he sends here, we we says he gathers all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 guys, right? This is a big deal. 30,000 guys would be half of our city, right? That's a big group of guys to go get this golden box and carry it into your town. This is a massive parade, okay? And it says then, and they were carried, uh, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart, with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. All right? Are we following what's happening here? David, eager for the presence of God to be returned and restored to Jerusalem, goes and gets the cart. They put the ark, gets the ark. The ark goes on a cart, was driven by some oxen, and the two sons of Abinadab, Ahio and Uzzah, uh, kind of are guiding it while the whole little parade is going on and they're celebrating that we're going to get the ark and we're going to bring it back to the capital and we're going to restore things. It's going to be win a victory for us. And David and all the household, this is verse five, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, in some translations, because of his uh, disrespect or irreverence to the Lord, his irreverent act. Some translations actually use that word, his irreverent act. Now, we look at that and we go, no, 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 hold on. That didn't seem like an irreverent act because the oxen stumbled, right? And if the oxen stumbled, that probably meant that the cart kind of jerked and the ark might have, you know, kind of jiggled a little bit. And if that's the presence of God, don't you think it just makes sense that we want to protect the presence of God? We want to make sure it doesn't crash or fall or, or whatever. And so Uzzah sticks out his hand to steady it or to make sure it's okay. But the Bible calls it 
an irreverent act or an error. What ultimately happens is that David, in his zeal, makes a pretty big mistake. Is it wrong for David to desire the presence of God to be in the capital? Is it wrong to want to bring the presence of God near? Uh, uh, is it wrong to want to set it up as a place where the, the central place for wor- of worship for the people? No, it's not wrong to want the presence of God to be near. Amen. However, in his zeal, his eagerness, he fails to consult God about how God wants to go about doing it. He did it his way. He came up with his own plan. He's like, I'm doing this for God. I'm going to get God's presence, right? In a lot of ways, David kind of assumed that it wasn't that big a deal how he got the presence of God into the, into the place, just as much as we get it there. There's a lot to learn about this. What's interesting is that Uzzah also probably makes the same mistake. Uzzah, right? He's in that place. He probably had great intentions, just like David. He had great intentions. I want to protect the ark. I don't want it to crash. I don't want to fall, you know. He had great intentions, but he did not realize the holiness of God's presence. And in thinking, I can preserve it, I can protect it, I can do what I think is should be done to stop it. And instead of honoring the holiness and the reverence of God, he takes it upon himself to try to fix the problem. But by touching the ark, what has he done? He's defiled the holy, the unholy Uzzah, touching the holy presence of God. It was a mistake. He might have been well-meaning, and David as well. But both dishonored the presence. Both dishonored the presence. And it cost. Cost was significant. I've thought a lot about this. Because quite honestly, I've seen many, even as a young, young person, when I first came to faith in Christ, I was so eager for the presence of God, so eager for the experience and the encounter, so eager for God to do something, you know, and show up in some awesome way that quite honestly, I kind of figured that I could manipulate him myself. I could kind of get God's favor and his presence to show up whenever I kind of snap my fingers. I'll give you an example When I was kind of, uh, God spoke to me about Harvest Springs, about Psalm 107. And we, we talked about this several weeks ago and uh, kind of our founding passages at church. I didn't necessarily know all that was going on in that time. God was doing so much and was trying to figure out it all. But it was in the midst of that, that suddenly I got a CD in the mail. How many of you guys remember those, uh, 
those mail order CD clubs you could get in. They'd promise you like get 15 CDs for a penny or, you know, get 25 for a dollar. And you just marked your list of, you know, ones you'd be interested. You guys remember this? Is that, or is that, am I the only one that's that old? Because I don't think they do this anymore. And so then they start sending you CDs. Well, I had not been a part of one of those clubs for years. And so not a part of the club, but all of a sudden, I think it was Columbia House, sent me a CD, the little cardboard package, right? And it shows up. I open it up. I'm like, where does this come from? It's got my name on it. And it happens to be a worship album. The Hillsong Shout to the Lord album. Okay? Now, I, I was not much of a, a worship guy at that time. I, you know, I'd grown up kind of uh, in very, very traditional churches. Hymns, uh, you know, piano and organ. Uh, you know, it was, it was, that was kind of my environment. And so I get this album that was a worship album, kind of intrigued by it. So I bust it open. I have a little meeting in town, so I, I jump in my truck, stick the CD in the CD player, and off I go. And the first song that plays is Shout to the Lord. Have you guys ever heard this song? <laughs> All of a sudden, the music starts playing, and these words start coming over the audio. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. My shelter. Is it? My shelter. Tower of uh, refuge and strength. Right? All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. And then the chorus, you know, shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. Power and majesty, praise to the king. Mountains bow down and the seas roar at the sound of your name. I'm listening to this for the first time. And the, in this sense of God's presence becomes so real to me. Like it was like, as I was starting to hear those words, that they were words from my soul to God and that God was there and he was receiving it all because it was true. And as I was, as I was in that place, they just felt like God was so real. And tears start streaming down my face. I pull over because God was so close and so near. I felt like I'm going to crash and then I'm going to meet Jesus face to face. And, uh, and so it, just this intense moment. And it, so, so it was so sweet. So I, I get done with my meeting and I put the song back on and I sing my way up to the church and I had a key to the church. Uh, we weren't the pastor. I wasn't the pastor, but I had a key. I got in, I came in, there was a sound booth right back there, kind of in the middle. And, uh, cause there was a wall across there at that time. And, uh, so I came in, I turned on the sound system. I turned everything up super loud. I put the CD in the CD player and I cranked up shout to the Lord again. And I came in here and I sang it uh, to the Lord. And again, just the sense of, pre of God's presence so close. And the, the, we have a, this stage has kind of been built up on top of the old stage, but the old stage uh, was kind of like right here. And so I sat down like right in this place right here. And uh, I was on the stairs 
And I remember just laying down and I raised my hands. And as I was singing and worshiping, kind of maybe for the first time, the Lord was so close. And I, uh, and I remember saying, Jesus. And as I did, it was like, uh, it was just like something swept over me. It was like intense. Felt like I kind of got electrocuted or something in the moment. In fact, the only time, uh, Charles Finney, I don't know if you've ever heard of Charles, Charles Finney. He was, a, he was a revivalist back in the 1800s, maybe one of the most successful evangelists in the United States in our history. And uh, super, super incredible man. At his conversion point, he had an encounter with God. He described it as God swept over him like waves and waves of electric love. That's how he described it. And that's, that's exactly how it felt for me. It's just, I'd say Jesus, and another wave would sweep over me. And I, it was like, awesome. And, uh, you know, so I'm like, oh, this is so wonderful and great. And, uh, and what I thought was probably just like five to 10 minutes of an encounter. All of a sudden, I look at my watch, and I've been there for over an hour. And I get up and I'm just overwhelmed that like what God had just done in me. And I, I couldn't believe it. It was so awesome and so wonderful being in God's presence. The very next day, do you know what I wanted? I wanted more of that. And so the very next day, do you know what I did? I grabbed that CD. I came into the church. I went to the back, I turned on all the sound system, put the CD on, I went to the exact same place on that CD and I started it. I came up here and then I sat in the exact same spot on the stage. I laid down, I put my hands up, I said Jesus a whole bunch of times. And I stayed there for, for probably about 30 to 40 minutes waiting for the presence of God to come. But that time it didn't feel like, you know, the five minutes was actually an hour and a half. It felt like that 30 minutes was like four hours. And I didn't sense like this closeness of God. It felt weird. And I, you know, I kept saying the things, raising my hands, moving around. Maybe it's the angle of my arm that was affecting it. I, I didn't know. And I walked out of there somehow discouraged because couldn't seemingly conjure up the presence of God like I had before. In hindsight, I realized that it's a lot like probably for most of us, when we have that encounter with the presence of God, we, we want to replicate it. We want to live there. We want more of it. In fact, uh, just coming to mind, remember Peter, James, and John are invited up onto the Mount Transfiguration, right? And they're standing there, and before them, Jesus is transfigured. He's glorified in their midst. And it's awesome, right? They're now in the presence of God, and right, Moses and Elijah show up, and they're like, wow. And what does Peter say? It is good for us to be here, right? And uh, he says, hey, let's build tabernacles, We'll build one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, right? Let's build tabernacles. What is he saying? He's like, this is so good. Let's just live up here. Forget everybody else down below, right? The, in the valley, let's stay on the mountaintop. Let's live in this experience because we want the presence of God and let's just cultivate this and this can be us and it'd just be great and wonderful and intense. And I wonder if, if Peter and James and John, if they could have, 
if they would have taken Jesus back up on the hill sometime and, you know, when they wanted to recreate that moment, you know, stand Jesus in the same spot and we'll go stand in the same spot and let's see if we can't make that happen again because it was so good. My heart and my desire to re-experience the closeness and the presence of God was not wrong. But for me to think that I could just go through the motions and force God into it was immature and foolish at best. God is not a genie that has to appear because we rubbed the lamp a certain way. He's God. He is the one who is in control. We're the created. He's the creator. And if we think that, right, we can conjure up God by going through all the motions and jumping through these hoops and, you know, we've held our hands this way, we said this, we sang this song, we said these words, then what are we really doing? We're just like magicians who have spells in a book. But that's not God. That's not God. David thought he could just bring the ark in and that'll solve all our problems. Doesn't matter how we do it. I can have a plan. I could do it my way. No, no, no. You, you can't handle the presence of God that way. Uzzah, right? I'll protect the presence of God. I'll stop it. Even though he did not understand or respect the holiness of the presence of God. And it cost him his life. I wonder if Uzzah had grown just a little bit too familiar with the ark. We know that the ark was for 20 years at Abinadab's house. And who was Uzzah? Uzzah was one of Abinadab's sons. We can assume maybe that Uzzah and Ohio probably just, they saw the ark. They'd been around the ark. They knew which building on the property it had been. It's the one on the hill. We kind of go in there, we check it out from time to time, show our friends, hey, you guys want a little tour of the ark? I could show you, you know. It kind of just grew a little accustomed to the presence of God. Like it wasn't that thing, that big a thing to be revered or to honor. And maybe Uzzah in that moment just didn't, didn't take it seriously enough. What happened after God struck down Uzzah in verse 8, it says that David became angry. David became angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Why was David angry? I've thought about this, and, and I, I don't think I have any grand answer. Other than I think David was frustrated because the error of his way had kind of become manifest. It had cost somebody their life. Because what was the real problem? God had given very clear instructions about how the ark was to be handled. It was to be carried on poles by priests. It was never supposed to be carried on a cart pulled by oxen. God had a specific way for handling his presence. And just because you're eager for it, just because you have good intentions, you can still dishonor the Lord. If you want to do it your way in your own selfishness. In fact, David goes on to say, it says David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David wanted the ark, to be honest with you, kind of for his own personal benefit. He wanted it for himself. 
And again, it's not wrong to desire the presence of God, but if you're going to try to do it your own way and do it in your own strength and your own power, you will ultimately dishonor the very one that you're pursuing. So in verse 10, it says, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. So first David's angry, then he's afraid. He realizes now that this box, the presence of God, which he kind of didn't think was that big a deal, right? We'll just pick it up and haul it into Jerusalem and now we'll be, I'll be blessed. We'll be victors. Now he just watches God break out against a guy and he dies just because he put his hand on it. And David's like, whew, a little bit like the Philistines. We don't know what we're messing with here. <laughs> Maybe we need to get this thing out of our midst. Well, David goes, I don't think we know what we're messing with here. And I'm not willing to bring it into the city of David. Now I'm afraid. It's a risky deal bringing the presence of God into our place. So he pushes now the presence of God out. But I want you to pay attention to what happens. Someone's willing to take the risk. It says, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom is the guy that I think we all should emulate. Obed-Edom had just watched a guy get struck down by the presence of God, right? Did not honor the Lord, acted foolishly, and now, right, he paid for his, with his life. David looks at it and goes, I'm too afraid to bring this any further. We're not bringing that in the city of David. Nope. <laughs> you know, more people can get struck down and the Lord breaks out. We mess up like, eh, it's too dangerous. But somehow Obed-Edom goes, no, 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 I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to pursue the presence of God. I'm willing to invite God's presence to come into my household. Can you imagine how risky that might have been? Can you imagine the little argument he might have had with his wife? You're bringing what here? It just killed a guy. You're bringing that into our home. But here's what we know about Obed-Edom. He honored the Lord and God's presence. It says, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, this is verse 11, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now, that's interesting to me. Abinadab and his sons had... Uh, had hosted the ark at their place for 20 years. But we get no report of them being blessed of the Lord. But Obed-Edom has the ark in his house for three months, and God is blessing everything he does. What I would suggest is that's because Obed-Edom honored the Lord, had the proper posture towards the presence of God. Obed-Edom honored the Lord, honored the presence, taught his family how to honor the presence. And the blessing of the Lord was upon him, so much so that in verse 13, or verse 12, it says, and then the king was told 
The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God, because the presence of God is there. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. It's kind of a sad verse, to be honest with you. If you're Obed-Edom, the closeness of God is there. The presence of God is in your household. You want to be close to God, you can just go sit in the room. You could, you could go, you know, uh, talk to him. The mercy seat's right there. Right? God is accessible. He's near. His presence is with us. And then all of a sudden, what? You're blessed, and the king finds out that you're being blessed because of it, and the king goes, hey, I'm taking that for myself. Snatches it out of your house. Hauls it off into Jerusalem. You can continue to read what happens there. They carry it there. They rejoice. And all of Israel celebrates now that the presence of God is in Jerusalem. But for Obed-Edom, you've got to imagine that there's this little bit of heartache. that It seems like the closeness of God isn't like it was before. And the accessibility of God isn't quite the same as it used to be. You ever felt like that? It felt like those times when God was so close and so vibrant, and then all of a sudden, the next day, you're doing the exact same stuff, but he just doesn't seem to be there, right? Even though you're laying on the stage, you know, raising your hand, saying, Jesus, Jesus, and playing the same music, like, why is it not working today? Where is the presence? Well, this isn't the end of the story, actually, because if you pay attention... Obed-Edom shows back up in Scripture. If you go to Second uh, Chronicles, or is it First Chronicles? Could you throw up that Chronicles passage, the First uh, Chronicles, chapter 26, verse 1. Here's what it says. As for the divisions of the gatekeepers, okay, so let's stop for a moment. This portion of Chronicles is listing those who are serving God in the temple. And there were a lot of different jobs in the temple, but one of the jobs was to be a gatekeeper. And this is listing gatekeepers. And there were gatekeepers for lots of different things. Like, so to get into certain parts of the temple, there was kind of an access point. And if you were not qualified to get into, you know, if you weren't a priest, you couldn't get into some places. If you were a Levite, you couldn't get into some places, right? So, so gatekeepers would guard and make sure that people who had appropriate access could get in and out and facilitate the functioning of the temple. Gatekeepers were a pretty big deal. They, they stood guard protecting God's temple and the worship of God's temple, the worship in God's temple, they stood guard night and day, facilitating the worship of God. As it's listing these different orders or different people who are gatekeepers in the temple, all of a sudden when we get to verse four, it says, and Obed-Edom had sons. Who's a gatekeeper in the in the house of the Lord now, Obed-Edom and his sons, Shemaiah, the firstborn, Jehoiada, the second, Joah, the third, Shachar, the fourth, Nathaniel, if you say them fast and you think you know them, uh, <laughs> Amiel, the sixth, Azekar, the seventh, uh, Penuthai, the eighth. Notice this. 
for God what? Blessed him. The blessing of the Lord was still on Obed-Edom. Three months of being in the presence. But now what do we know? The presence is moved to Jerusalem. But guess who moved? Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom is relocated. He's reoriented his life now. No longer is he far away, but now he has given himself in service to the presence of God. And if you pay attention, you'll see then in chapter 15, what kind of gatekeeper was Obed-Edom? In 1 Chronicles 15, if you'll throw up that passage, it lists a bunch of these uh, priests and their service, and it says Shebaniah, Jehoshaphat, Nathaniel, Amasai, Zechariah, Benaiah, Eliezer, the priest, should blow the trumpets before the ark of God, and what? Obed-Edom and Jehiah were to be gatekeepers for what? The ark. Of all the things to be close to, to guard and protect, Obed-Edom found himself a job right next to the presence of God. Here's the thing. If you experience the presence of God, you won't be satisfied then anywhere but in the presence of God. If you've really truly experienced God's presence in your life and he's moved in such a way, there will be an eagerness and a hunger in your soul to be in his presence. That's why David writes in his Psalm, better is one day in your house, in your presence, than a thousand elsewhere. Being in your presence is that good. It's not wrong for us to desire and pursue and want to pursue the presence of God. In fact, we are all invited and we should pursue the presence of God. But we also have to respect and honor the presence. We have to approach him on his terms, not on ours. We have to respect and honor him as the God of the universe. And we are just simply the created And maybe if he just gives us one little glimpse of his presence, we'll praise him and celebrate him for it. I'm going to ask the band to come out. I'm just going to invite you to stop for a moment and think about your attitude towards the presence of God. Because here's the thing. God invites you to pursue him. And James, he writes, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Obed-Edom found a way to continue to pursue the presence of God, even though the presence of God seemingly had gone far away. He continued to pursue that presence. For you and I, it might not be Christmas any longer, but you know what we can still do each and every day? We can continue to pursue the presence of God can open up our Bibles and pursue the presence of God in his word. We can stop and we can pray and we can focus on him and we can pursue his presence in prayer. We can gather weekly and continue to pursue his presence together as a church. Together, even now, as we close in this final song, we can stand together and to pursue the presence of God.
So would you stand with me? Let's close. And I'm just going to pray, and then we'll close with this final song. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would help us be those who would pursue the presence of God. But may we do it on your terms, not on ours. There is no secret. There is no special words or or a certain posture we have to get into. Father, it's by your grace that you show up in our lives. But we do even now ask, Lord, that you would show up. And even this day after Christmas, that you would grace us with your presence. Give us a sense of your nearness. And God, may we become so eager and so hungry for you that we become like Obed-Edom, willing to reorient our entire lives to just be close to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.